out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As always, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician... Um, singer-songwriter and also guitarist. It is the one and only Sonny Vincent who was in the New York punk band with the, um, the outfit title The Testers and they played at CBGB's Max's Kansas City but he also worked for many years with Mo Tucker and Sterling Morrison playing guitar, ex-members or yes, members of Velvet Underground and also has worked with the likes of Scott Ashton and uh, many others. Anyway, look, I'm not going to spoil it because frankly, Mr Shankly, that would be terrible but um, just to say that he has got a phenomenal amount of uh, solo work as well so if you want to find out any more information you will. I will give you the uh, kind of a website at the end of the interview. But this is it. After many, well, several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Sonny, it's over to you. Well, you know, it's it's usually, well, for me, it, it's kind of the typical one. Um, when I was a kid, um, they just came out with these transistor radios, these little square things, you know, the size of a soap dish almost. And um you, you know, kids would hold them to their ears and, and it was a new thing and transistor radios. And yes. simultaneously, when that came out, the Beatles came out with their first hits in the United States. So, and it sounded amazing over those little radios because back then, you know, everything was uh, tubes like uh, valves, you know, the radio station, the board was valves, um, you know, the recordings were valve, you know, and although it was coming over these little transistor radios it had this really raw rock and roll sound and all the kids were hearing that and it was like a you know even though the songs were like you know about he he loves her and she loves him and love love and all this stuff you could hear the rebellion in between in the vibe and so everybody had those you know transistor radios blasting you know the Beatles and, and at home too and of course you know then came Stones and th then you know came a little bit deeper digging, you know, like uh, I was in the suburbs, so I only heard what was on the radio, but every once in a while, you know, you'd hear on an obscure radio station, the Yardbirds and stuff. And then of course later came the Kinks. And so I would think that the first, you know, excitement was that stuff. And then discovering, you know, deeper into into music itself, like, you know, Howlin' Wolf and Screamin' Jay Hawkins and, you know, just Little Richard and all the, the early stuff, you know, that was, that I heard when I was an infant, you know, little, you know, but ambiently, but then really get into it. Yes, absolutely. And did you have a, did you come from a slightly musical family or did your, your parents enjoy music and jazz or blues or anything like that or musical? I just wondered, because some people, some people say, no, my dad was very white, you know, blue collar worker and we had no music and other people say, oh yeah, my dad was a bit of a jazz, you know, drummer. Yeah, um, no, um, my parents were ignorant uh, Neanderthal types and there was no, decorations or music at all around the house, not even an encyclopedia or something. Although I went to other kids' houses and saw how it could be with being exposed to the different arts and everything. So music was kind of like my way out of a bad situation. Um, yes. One, can, yeah, one, one, yeah. 
one Christmas an uncle left uh, an acoustic guitar under a Christmas tree, not wrapped, no bow, but I didn't need that. I just needed that guitar. I grabbed it, wrote a song on it and just carried on. My God, that was amazing. Can you remember what year that was? It was in the 60s. Um, uh, let's see, uh, 60, I don't know, 64, 65. 64, my God, that was the I'm year. Not really, yeah, not really good on dates. So was, no. was, yeah, so you were really the typical, this is kind of, you know, like bit like David Bowie saying that, you know, music was his way out of a sort of life that he couldn't be at bear. So did you also have those kind of ambitions or at least desperation, which is often quite a good thing as well to have? There was a duality. Um, as I got older, you know, and I still was playing guitar, I, you know, and then the, it was, the hippie scene came around and stuff. And, you know, I was a young um, adolescent. I was the guy that, you know, we would all gather in a park and, you know, sit around for picnics or for, you know, just get togethers and I'd have a, a guitar. Somewhere in my imagination, I probably was, you know, considering, wow, it would be great to, you know, do something with this. And then later on, I started seeing that more clearly and, and had sort of an ideation of making music my main focus in life. Yes, because you were kind of, in a way, you were the sort of perfect age to see, to experience the whole 60s world of the the first Beatles with their little suits and hair. But, you know, you could tell there was something kind of different to them from what happened, you know, during the late 50s and the very early 60s with the slightly manufactured bands. And then you must have then seen, you know, like you mentioned, the Stones and the Yardbirds and those kind of then the sort of early Who. But then you would have seen that change with that 66, 67, with the Summer of Love and the, and the sort of, I suppose, the introduction of things like the sort of psychedelic world, as well as kind of, you were born, you were in New York, so that always seemed to be quite a different scene than the uh, kind of West Coast scene. So did you, did you sort of have that kind of awareness of, of different, you know, the different kind of quality of like the East Coast to the West Coast and, and what was going on generally? Yeah, um, yeah like when I was... Um, fairly young and like, I don't know, let's see, around uh, 13 or something or. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to just. Um... Years old. That, was, um, that was more during um, kind of the, the beatnik greaser stage. And that's Marlon Brando in the movies, you know, wild ones and all that stuff. So the rebellious kids in my school wore like, you know, straight leg pants, iridescent shirts, pointy shoes, you know, and it was more like the greaser thing. Like that that movie, what is it? What was it? The Jets and the um, East Side Story, you know? It was right, like, yes. You know, that, that kind of a thing. And that's how that's how we, we were styled and how we connected, like from the bad side of the tracks, you know? Then the hippie thing came along. And uh, I remember seeing one kid coming through the hallway with like a fringe kind of, vest on and some boots that went up to his leg you know to his knee and stuff and that was my first thing and then right along with you know the the or you know the evolution of the Beatles of course you then the hippie thing came and then we all grew hair and uh, longer and became hippies but it still had that element of desperation and rebellion the New York scene wasn't as you know peace and love as the, the West Coast was. And, and the West Coast was great. And the, the commitment of a lot of the people to a movement was beautiful. Although 
a lot of it was like what we called weekend hippies, you know, people that would get wild on the weekend. But in the meantime, they're, they got their money invested in stocks and, you know, they got their hair pulled back in a ponytail. So they're not really hippies, you know. So we were hippies, but we noticed the hypocrisy all around us, which was beautiful when punk came around because that that was the pissed off bunch of us. Yes, well, absolutely. And did you pick up on things like the the Velvet Underground? Did did they come into your orbit at all during the late sixties, or were they that small that even people in New York didn't meet them? That's that's an interesting question because um, when I was thirteen, I ran away from home. And I was tall for my age, and when I would meet people, especially girls, you know, that were older than me, I would always lie about my age. So I was thirteen and told everybody I was seventeen. Um, I heard all the groups ambiently, like Moby Grape and, you know, um, you know, Quicksilver Messenger Service and all the kind of crazy bands from the West Coast in New York. Um, also, I must have heard the Velvet Underground, you know, walking into a small shop or something. But I w- was at a gig of the Bugs. It was like a kind of an early beat group in New York. And I was at a gig. And after that show, I was tagging along with some people and I wound up in Andy Warhol's factory. And even at that point, I hadn't heard the Velvet Underground. I just hung around the factory, slept over there for a night and then split, met some of the people. And it wasn't until later that someone compared one of my songs in a a review as, oh, this one has kind of a velvety dirge-like feel to it. And so I listened to the Velvet Underground you know, focused. And I said, wow, I really love this. And I do feel a kinship with this. And strangely enough, I went on to play with Maureen Tucker and Sterling Morrison on tour for like seven years, nine years, and uh, recorded with them. But yeah, it's just, it's just something I didn't hear as early as some of the people who might have gone to like art school, you know, and learned about Andy Warhol, and then peripherally, you know, got into the Velvets. Yes, my God, your your yes, that's that's your teen years were quite sort of heavy, weren't they? Let's face it, <laughs> it was kind of yes, running away oh, from yeah. some, you know there, there was some. Um, and what were the streets like in New York? You know, because we hear a lot about the seventies where it's quite grim. Was the sixties any better? The sixties were kind of grungy, but um, had this kind of like you know there were there were different kinds of people on the streets. There were like you know, the flowery flower children. And then there were kind of like the leftist letter, uh, um, what was it called, Weatherman type yes. of um, anarchist, uh, you know, like, um, you know, like uh, Jerry Rubin and, uh, you know. Oh, Abby like Hoffman that. as well. Abby okay. Hoffman, that, that crowd, you know, they were more kind of a little bit more, you know, stressy and want to change the world now and, you know, put LSD in the water in Washington, D.C. and take over. So you had those kinds on the street and all their minions and then you had the flower children and artist types of folks and so the streets in the 60s was it was alive you know if you walked down St. Mark's place a lot of the stoops you know the steps that led up to the um, buildings on St. Mark's place were painted with day glow paint and you know I was just like 13 I was going wow this is insane you know <laughs> by the time by the time the punk scene came around the the entire middle class had moved out of New York City. New York City was in default and bankrupt. There was garbage bags piled up like, you know, 12 feet tall on every corner because the garbage companies wouldn't pick it up. And <clears throat> there was no services. People's lights were out. And so the punk scene became a scene of 
where the middle class moved out of New York City and um, the, 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 the um, disenfranchised poor folks were still there. And there was a lot of gangs and stuff. And the artists were, the benefit to the artists were you could rent massive amount of space for like 90 bucks a month. So yes. there was a, yeah, there was a cool like artist community forming during the time that, you know, New York was in default. And that was all, you know, that was all during the, Ooh, um, during the formative years of the punk. Yes. And did you, I mean, just, just briefly, I mean, was, were things like the mafia, were they kind of, did they have a presence in New York during that sort of period where you could sort of sense that these kind of quite heavy gangs were there, people were going to shoot you? Oh, yeah. Like if you went to Little Italy and, you know, you, you wanted to have a cappuccino and a cannoli or something or, you know, a dinner, there's all these cool Italian restaurants in Little Italy. But I, I remember times when, um, you know, I, I heard a guy talking and it was like Joey Gallo's son and his dad had been killed in one of the restaurants. And yeah, it was it was all around, you know, I mean, um, I wasn't a politician or, you know, somebody that was into, you know, like gambling or something. So I didn't have like a lot of firsthand experience, but you you saw it all around you. Yes, blimey. And then the late 60s, you formed your first band, didn't you? Um, or several at this point. The main one, which was called, was it Liquid Diamonds as well? Oh. Oh, wait, um, uh, could you ask that again? Because it, it um, glitched out. It slightly glitched out, yes. Then you, you know, by the late 60s, though, you'd started forming your first sort of punk bands, didn't you? And the most notable one of those is that called liquid diamonds or had you recorded before then as well um yeah um it was those bands were more like i don't know what you would call it hard rock or heavy rock it was a precursor to um the the punk days you know when i kind of stripped down my music um i know that that album came out as an archival album and it's really resonating with people that are into um more like heavy kind of stuff. Um, I did notice when I was playing later with Testers, um, which I guess could be called a punk band, um, at CBGB's and um, Max's, there were there were many wonderful bands, and um, you know the image of punk was pretty tough. But you know um, the music um, uh, in in some most cases wasn't as tough as the image. In other words, like you know you had Blondie. You know, you had the Ramones, great groups. I love Blondie, I love the Ramones. You know, rock, rock, rock away beach. You know, the Ramones had this cool kind of dangerous vibe mixed in with Bay City Rollers and the Beach Boys, you know? But none of them had songs like Testers. My, my band Testers had no songs about girl meets boy or I love you or she loves me. We had songs like It's Only Death. You know, we had like these kind of unfriendly subjects that people, couldn't feel all warm and fuzzy and dance to, you know? And so um, we were kind of, we did kind of have um, a tough kind of hard sound, which came from my formative years of digging groups like Hendrix and Blue Cheer. And so it just kind of formed, you know, got into form you know, like punk. And I mean, the damned also have a tough sound. I can, I gotta admit that. But um, so like Liquid Diamonds and Fury and Distance, the stuff on that one album that came out a couple years ago as an archival thing, those were all like pre-punk. So they were kind of like proto-heavy, proto-punk. And um, there was no, 
there was no term for the kind of music that I was doing at that time. Um, now that that's come out, people have compared it to a, like groups like Dust and I guess Sir Baltimore, but those are groups I never heard when I was recording those songs. It's just, yes. there's a similarity. Cause you, you mentioned Blue Cheer, because I did an interview with Randy, is it Holden, recently to find out a bit about his kind of career, because he was in Blue Cheer during the sort of 60s for a brief time, I think, and then has done other things. So, um, yes, they were quite the band, weren't they? As, as kind of, I suppose oh, yeah. there was quite a Nuggets, you know, that, that whole Nuggets compilation that we all love has had a massive influence, haven't they? And um, yes, I guess, I guess that game, that's been archived very well. So we've, we all know at least one song by most of those bands, if not the whole, you know, probably not the whole album actually. But then, <laughs> but when, when the 60s kind of came to a bit of an end, not just like the, the actual year, but when, when people like Jim, Jimi Hendrix died and Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin, then you had the Charles Manson thing and Altamont, you were sort of at that age where you were probably about 18. Did that feel like, oh my God, the party's over, or did it sort of, you know, it's quite a major thing to happen. I mean, to have that amount of, you know, death and, and destruction. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was shocking, um, you know, to, to for, for those developments to happen. And like, um, there, there, I don't know, there was a weird dichotomy going on with me and a lot of other people. And I think that's really what resulted in punk. Because like um, a lot of the people making the music, like, and, and I can't criticize anybody. Like I could criticize the Rolling Stones all day, but if I hear Mick Jagger playing the harmonica, I say, I'm in heaven, you know, fuck it. You know, I don't care what they do, stupid. They, I love it, you know? But the thing is that um, and when I was a kid, I'm listening to the Rolling Stones and they're doing like street fighting, man. Well, simultaneously while they're recording that, Mick's having, um, you know, dressed down inspections of his butlers and his maids at his castle. You know, there was nothing, you know, like when you're young and you hear the first Led Zeppelin album, you go, whoa, rebellious. You hear the first Stone stuff, the first Who stuff. But when those guys became like lords in castles, it, it changed. Something changed. Something became more like commerce instead of community, you know. Yeah. And so and so that was the resentment of the kind of punk scene, the punk scene kind of uh, dis disenfranch uh, divorced itself from the the peak of the hippie scene, the peak of the hippie scene where guys were fucking their amps and like you know like licking their tongues and playing between their legs and stuff. And like um, we went back to the '60s, like in the '50s actually, the, the early '60s and the like Bo Diddley, you know, and the, the you know the the raw artist Gene Vincent you know, and, and Little Richard to where it was just kind of the raw energy without the, the um, kind of elevated histrionics that came from dudes who were living in castles, you know, dudes who were ultimately super rich and weren't really, you know, having the pulse of young people that were going through their changes, you know? This is true. I think there's, there's something about the, because Lemmy, I love Lemmy from Motorhead and also David Bowie as well, as I mentioned earlier. And whenever they got sort of asked about their kind of musical heroes, they both said Little Richard and then they said, you know, Eddie Cochran and Elvis Presley, the, the Sun years especially. And, and, and as Lemmy said, you know, that, that kind of 16 to 18 year old, you know, it, you know, there is something kind of like quite unique, but it's only going to happen once in those. 
and those kind of bands that you loved at that stage are always going to be with you and and you can't sort of oh think, yeah yeah I, I, oh yeah I, I feel the same way about the early early rockers but like i don't want to be misinterpreted in terms of like i love all those groups and i don't have a bitterness about their success i i believe that if i would have had that kind of um opulence and success i'd probably been intolerable you know <laughs> knowing myself and knowing my person oh excuse me i want all the red objects removed from this castle tomorrow immediately you know it's like i think i would be really a terror you know so <laughs> you know i yes. don't begrudge anything um everybody has their own story i don't know some of these people i might talk about personally so you know and i love the music but yes, there I'm is kind of a philosophical crack when they all became super rich and we were just kids trying to find our way through life listening to these spokesmen through their music and then later finding out wait a second you know this this is there's a crack here you know do you know what i'm saying yes absolutely no it's it's yeah. that, that's the kind of that's, that's the exciting part of life really so then there's yeah. a 70s progressed I mean in the UK as I mentioned we had the wonderful world of glam rock and then we had people like you know the first Black Sabbath album which was a masterpiece and then obviously as you mentioned Led Zeppelin as well um, and then the birth of that kind of west coast rock um, but New York you had bands like Suicide that were started to to do their sort of avant-garde sort of peculiar rock as well and then and then with the, with that you know there were the sort of New York dolls started to appear and obviously you know, we had Captain Beefheart and people like that. So what was your kind of next period before you, you know, the testers appeared in 75? It, it's funny you bring that up because it was with groups like Suicide. Um, when I got to the point of having my groups and doing some home recordings and some minimal studio stuff, and we wanted to play shows, by the time we were, you know, in New York, pounding the streets, looking for places to play, everything had changed. Like if you looked at Greenwich Village during, you know, the, the folky scene with Bob Dylan, there was a club, you know, on every street in the village, like right next to each other, streets and streets of nightclubs. If you look at the venues in the 60s, you know, for groups like Hendrix, The Doors, you know, and even the Velvet Underground, there were, there were places they could play, like the Electric Circus, you know, and stuff. We wound up playing the Electric Circus with uh, Suicide. And it was my group called Distance at the time. It was Suicide from New York City. And it was this group called the Dogs from Detroit, which were kind of like a cool Detroit MC5 kind of thing. When we got into there, it was very unkempt, the, the, the venue. It was a huge kind of venue. Um, it, it reminded me of like a weird uh, eraser head husk of a nightclub that had existed at a former time and we played the show nobody came you know like it was this giant dark space with you know 20 or 40 people when you know when the scene then was alive you know a lot of people were coming to that place so it new york city like we spoke earlier was in default um and like the streets were gangs the the clubs were mostly all gone and um, the places you could play were leftover husks from David Lynch's imagination. And it was like, um, you know, and the only thing that came cool was s s some like initial 
shakings, reactions from smaller clubs like Club Eight, Club 82, which was a transvestite bar and a couple of little places like that to play. But finally, CBGBs and Maxes started to showcase original bands. And that's when the excitement you know, started to get into gear where you could play a proper show with a proper excited audience. Yes, absolutely. And at that stage, because, you know, from sort of being quite the other side of the pond, but, you know, New York has this thing that it got abandoned by the authorities and it was quite bankrupt. So, you know, obviously it was quite cheap to live, but it also it was quite horrendously rough. And there's also the sort of, you know, a lot of horrendous, you know, hard drugs as well. So how did you manage to sort of live in, probably not on the street, but, you know, like living as you did, how did you sort of kind of manage to manoeuvre and navigate that kind of, time you know before you could sort of get some some sort of stability in life geez you're like my psychoanalyst here i I can't believe you're asking questions like this there (laughs) there is a very there is a very poignant story and i don't want to shock the listeners and i don't want to seem like a tough guy or anything but um as we spoke earlier i came from a a kind of a crummy background it it wasn't really um let's say it wasn't nurturing it was the opposite by the time I got from the suburbs um, to New York City um, I was trying to navigate myself down the streets down Broadway down Madison Avenue down Sixth Avenue and like there were crowds of people coming at me and like I was kind of moving out of everybody's way because they were so confidently coming at me and I couldn't figure out whether I was being polite, because oh, maybe they're in a more of a hurry, you know, polite. And what happened was I had an epiphany that I realized it wasn't politeness. I was the lowest of the lowest motherfuckers on the whole pecking order in New York City. People coming at me, no matter who they were, had the right away, and I had to just stand by. And so I th- said, that must be something from, you know, this ego crushing uh, childhood I had. So. What I did without any friends, without anybody to impress, but almost like a self-realization therapy was I would go to 42nd Street, which was the toughest, badass street you could possibly imagine. It was all pimps in full length, uh, like uh, mink coats and big hats and parked illegally right on the street next to them was big Cadillacs with metal flake green you know, paint on it and stuff. And it was condoms on the street, needles on the street, hookers everywhere, porno shops up and down the street. And like, people just didn't go there unless they wanted trouble. I would go there very late at night alone. And between um, between 7th Avenue and 8th Avenue, that strip of um, 42nd, oh wait, it was between Times Square and, and between Times Square, 7th and 8th. And so, I would walk down 42nd Street and I would say, I'm not moving out of anybody's way. I would rather die. And so I would walk down that street. And if the badass giant dude was there and you see he's got a gun, you can see it sticking out. I I said, he's going to have to move or we're going to crash, you know, and it's going to be trouble. But this is life and death to me. I have to grab some ego somewhere in the world. So I would walk in a straight line down 42nd Street. And these guys would look at me and kind of smirk and kind of move out of my way because they probably thought it was better to avoid trouble with this crazy fucker, you know. (laughs) And I did that every night until I kind of commanded (laughs) my own 
kind of turf on 42nd Street. And it was like going through 20 years of psychoanalysis. I, I finally, I, I changed my name. Um, and I just kind of, I just kind of, I would say reinvented myself. And the way I was before was kind of shy. If someone stared at me, I was always the first to look away. I was very polite. I didn't say swear words ever. And so I just, um, and New York City was the the best place to to build up that way you know you had to deal with gangs with knives you know very frequently and there was always these confrontations so yeah new york city was like uh you know hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, psychotherapy for me yeah well blimey that's uh, it did it did sound like a scene from taxi driver the way you were sort of describing some of those kind of late yeah. night scenes as well sort of yeah the scum on the streets and all that. I wish they would wash these gut- these down the gutter and all that kind of. We, we loved Taxi Drive, didn't we, at the time? Anyway, that was all very exciting. But then 75, you know, this is, I mean, punk is just about starting to hit. And I did an interview with this guy called Richard Strange, who was in the Doctors of Madness in the UK. And he said they were there, right there. But he said we were two years too early for punk. But everybody in the audience loved it and then formed punk, punk bands and made lots of money. And he just went, oh, we've kind of missed it. But you you must have, with the with the testers, was right in the right place at the right time to sort of pick up that kind of kind of energy that was happening in New York and obviously over in the UK as well. Yes. Um, although, although, you know, I had this kind of new confidence, I still had this idealistic kind of worldview in my character so like um i don't know there was a lot of, we'd play a show and there'd be a lot of people coming up to us going like oh hey hey i want to talk to you i've got a connection in sweden with a record company in a studio we want to record you and make a film about your band and i'd say fuck you and walk away because i just thought they were like music biz people you know and i don't know i, I just I, I kind of listened to what what people say, you know, like when I was a kid, you know, like all the boys wanted to be astronauts or truck drivers and the, the ladies, the, the girls wanted to be airline stewardesses, but I've spoken to airline stewardesses. How do you like your job? Oh, it sucks. It's like a waitress in the sky. You don't even get oxygen like the pilot does. You get. Yes. You get re- recycled air that was originally, you know, in the cabin. So I was thinking, well, that's not a good job, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I just kind of, um, I don't know, I just kind of always had like a, like, you know, like John Lennon, like when he became successful and was living after the Beatles um, in, in New York City, he would say things in interviews like, you know, well, okay, I'm successful, but I spend all day talking to lawyers and accountants, the same fuckers that I hated when I was 10 and 11 years old. This is hell, you know? And so when business guys came up to me, you know, talking business stuff, I, I guess I was very stupid in that way, but I just told them to piss off. So there was a lot of opportunities probably, probably we missed, but we were, we were maniacally focused on the, if I can use the word integrity, you know, of our music, our art. And it sounds a little bit arrogant, but we truly were focused on that and uh, wouldn't budge. No, absolutely. Did changing your name, um, was that a bit like the David Bowie thing of sort of wanting to create a character that you could sort of step into so that you could feel a bit more confident and a bit like putting a mask on? I just wondered if that was, that was like, just felt a bit more comfortable sort of realizing that you know you could think this is this is like you know Vince Taylor or somebody like that thinking no this is me 
the kind of the musician, not me, this young kid who's got all these kind of, you know, family stuff and, and sort of issues, I suppose, that we all have in life. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hadn't read about that, you know, that formative stuff about David. I, I think I read something along those lines at one point, but yeah, it was precisely like that. Um, when I changed my name and um, I mean, I didn't go through like a, you know, like a radical transformation. Um, it's hard to say. Basically, like after then, when people would ask me about my my past life, I would just say, oh, my parents are dead, you know, or, or like, uh, oh, I grew up, uh, you know, in, somewhere else, you know, I just wouldn't talk about my former life. It, my life started when I changed my name. And yes. when, yeah, so kind of like that, yes. I think Jim, Jim Morrison always said his parents were dead, which I think surprised them. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they sat there watching the telly, like, I don't think we are. <laughs> Good old Jim. He he knew how to be, <laughs> he made, made a splash. But then with, with the testers, did you get, eventually get on the record label? Because were you on Rave Up Records? This Was this... Was this a, the label that signed you eventually? No, um, Rave Up Records was something that put the testers material out many, many years later, like 25 years later or something. Um, the only thing that testers put out was a single that was put out by Bleaker Bob. And Bleaker Bob owned a record shop in New York City. And he was the had the wisest, wise-ass mouth of everybody in New York City. People always had trouble with him, but he had a heart of gold, but he wanted to be our manager. But him being our manager meant we had to go into his record shop once a week and hear him scream at us and insult us. And um, he, he wanted to put out a, a single from us and we chose the song that had the most melody in it. And um, he put it out. He never told us that um, it was a big hit in Australia that in Australia bar bands were playing our song and it was on the radio and bands covered it on their albums. He never told us that. So I never knew it till much later. It's kind of like um, almost a, to a smaller extent that searching for Sugarman story, you know, like yes. we were, oh, uh, yes. yeah. we're a big, big in Australia. And like a guy wrote me later and said, Hey, would you like to re-record those songs and put it on my little label? He goes, you don't know it, but, um, if you would have come to Australia at a certain time, you would have been like the Osmond brothers. You would have flown from Perth to Melbourne, from Melbourne to Sydney, and you would have had it really made. But Bleaker Bob didn't tell us he was selling all those records down there. So we just were scrunging around in New York. And um, <laughs> <laughs> what was, the, was that single called Together? Was that the one that? Yeah. Yeah. Together in Time is Mine. I mean, I was in a club in London once um, with this guy, Russell Warby, and um, there was a group called Died Pretty and they were playing a club in London and Russell introduced me to the manager. He goes, oh my God, when I left Australia, your single was on my turntable. And I was going, really? You know, it's like, wow, cool. But it, it just goes that way sometimes for musicians, you know? Yes. God, I love that band, Died Pretty. They just, you know, such good guys and still happening. So with, with them, you know, having done this show for quite a long time, you know, most bands have that kind of a five-year narrative and yours is going to be slightly different, but slightly similar as well. You know, you kind of get together, you make a good sound, you get a couple of singles and then hopefully an album. This is mostly in the UK and then you do the touring around the, 
because you know the UK is tiny, isn't it? Let's face it. Um, and they, yeah. it's a tricky second album, and by the third album, everyone's just kind of just had enough of it all. But you you split up sort of in the early eighties, did you? But you must have been absolutely the band in New York during that kind of period with with the sort of whole explosion of punk and the excitement of people like Malcolm McLaren coming over from the UK, sort of wanting to find out what this theme was all about. Oh, can you hear me? It glitched out for a second. Yes, I can hear you. Okay. That's cool. So with Malcolm McLaurin coming over. Yeah, yeah. No, but I just wondered, because you were there for the five years. I don't know if you, you heard that bit where, you know, punk was in its kind of the early years and the kind of the, the kind of great bit. But like with any scene by the, the third or fourth year, things have started to get a bit tacky. But you were there right, you know, during that sort of golden period of 75 to 81. I just wondered how it was for you and were you the you know, navigating that period during, during sort of the New York punk scene? Yeah, well, um, it was very exciting. Um, there were a lot of people who would, you know, get on stage that didn't have the, the playing ability or the technical prowess to impress, you know, like, you know, like uh, classic rock people, for example, but they had the passion and they had the raw energy. And so that was very exciting. Um, like I said, kind of, drew back to the to the you know the well of the 50s music and the 50s kind of rawness and so all the bands were you know like uh very exciting you know with with some exceptions but like for example the cramps they um they were playing um max's kansas city then they were playing cbgb's and when they were playing cbgb's they were constantly on audition night like hilly crystal would say oh you guys sound okay but you know go home and practice a little bit more and come back and so basically they kept coming back but in coming back there were more people for the cramps tuesday night audition to see if they're good enough to play cbgb's um then we're on the friday night gigs so they finally demanded that you know they want to have a normal show on a better night and they requested testers um play along with them so that that opened some doors for us um yes. but but like i said we were just we were kind of i was kind of off the hook um i was um i don't know i still had a chip on my shoulder and um i didn't have like a common uh sense of 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 business in balance in other words like People that I know, like Steve Baders, and you know what I know about Iggy, and you know from talking to him, and, and like from playing with guys from his his band, the Stooges, is that they also have a very keen business kind of um, uh, like shark-like radar. In mm -hmm. other words, um, like you know, I I heard that when when Iggy first met Danny um, Danny Sugarman. Um, that was managing the doors. He was the wild child. He just ran across the dressing room and jumped in Danny's arms, you know. And I knew Steve Bader's really well. He, we were very close. And Steve was the kind of dude that would get on stage and pour beer all over himself, put chewing gum on his pubic hair, and then take it off his pubic hair and chew it some more, and put it on his underarm hair and chew it some more, and then spit out a bunch of baloney on the people in the front row and stuff. But off stage. Stiv was a real gentleman and he knew how to schmooze. Like if you had a record company or 
film companies. There was, oh, really? Um, yes, of course. Oh, yes. Shaking hands. Really, the art of schmoozing. Like I said, if I met business people, I'd be like, fuck you. So we were <laughs> just kind of like, I don't know, the wrong band for, um, you know, doing business. It, it was, like I was aware of that the punk scene in England was a whole different thing that, that was like a grand social movement and everything. And I, I'd read about that. I heard the records and stuff, but I didn't retain the impact of that. Like when later, when I played, um, played music with Captain Sensible on my albums and Glenn Matlock, you know, from the Sex Pistols and mm. Rat Scabies from the Dam, when I spoke to them, um, they had a level of success that not many of the New York bands had. Um, they, so um, it was just, a, I don't know. I just think that Testers was not made for um, business. We just would have blown it at every corner, you know? Yeah. So, you know, so that's just the way it went. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that because then it, I, I think it just gets to the people who dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Did you also with the New York scene? Did you get that sort of the uh, the um, rockabilly thing with the rock cats and also the early stray cats and all those people like Lee Black Childers and Smutty Smith? Did they because they were sort of quite big or they become quite popular in that world of the the New York scene? Because I know that Smutty had got sort of brought over from Essex to, to New York. Um, with Lee by Childers and 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 various other people, and they formed the band, and they were kind of big, but again, they didn't quite ever get the recording that they were looking for. And then the Stray Cats happened, and it was like, okay, well, I think the, the Rock Cats have slightly missed their day. But did you sort of pick up on that rockabilly scene at all? Yeah, um, I mean, Smutty. Weird. I keep getting weird phone calls and it interrupts. Oh. Zoom. Yeah, um, Smuddy was very loved in the New York scene and, you know, all those guys. And uh, there was kind of like within the kind of quirky punk bands and, and like the rock and roll -y punk bands, you know, like the Heartbreakers and all, there was also this underlying thread of bands that were very influenced by rockabilly and even like by reggae. You know, there were just certain reggae bands, like, you know, how The Clash had that kind of reggae aspect to them sometimes. We had New York people that were also like that. And um, so it was, the scene was open, uh, open-minded enough to accept, you know, or to, you know, to, to, to include, um, you know, all kinds of styles and stuff. And I know that a lot of my friends were personal friends with Smuddy and, and you know, the, they were very well loved and, uh, and they brought it, they brought excitement to the scene because um, like I said, you know, testers would get up on stage and play a kind of a, cold dark song it's only death you know whereas the rockets uh you know would get up on stage and people would have fucking fun you know so like <laughs> it, it's kind of like we were a little bit more towards suicide than the rockets because you know our you know we're songs about desperation songs about suicide you know whereas you know after people work all week and want to go to a club and have some drinks, they want to fucking have fun. They don't want to hear a dude on stage talking about suicide and death, you know, so um, I can understand that. And myself, I like to have fun, too. So the Rockettes were were a blast. Yes, absolutely. But then 81, you finish the band finish and then you relocate to Minneapolis. Was that kind of an easy decision at the time to make the, to sort of split and to relocate? That was crazy because I was 
living with a girl on Bleecker Street. You could see CBGBs from my apartment. And um, uh, I, I didn't socialize all that much. You know, I kind of kept to myself. But, you know, she wanted to get out of New York City and go back where she was from, Minnesota. And I said, um, well, can I get shows there? He goes, yeah. And, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And everything was like great. And, you know, according to her. And so we packed up, moved to Minnesota. And like, it was like moving to Nome, Alaska at that time in the 80s. It was kind of crazy. Shortly, I did find um, some, some kind of scene going on in Minnesota. And it was refreshing because um, like I met Husker Du and I went to one of their shows and I went up to them and I didn't want to be insulting or condescending or like, I'm from New York, you know, you're from stupid ass Minnesota, you know, but I went up to them and I said, dude, you guys are playing with the same spirit that we used to play three years ago in New York before everything got all jaded and junkied out and depowered. And they're, they're going, really? Oh, thanks, man. So they took it as a compliment. And uh, I really liked the, the young kind of energetic scene in Minnesota. Um, and I stayed there for a while. Yes. I wound up playing with Yeah. Well, I, uh, Husker Du, one of my favorite bands of the 80s. In fact, I thought they were going to be the biggest band of the 80s, but they were kind of Candy Apple Grey and then the Warehouse album, and then they split up. But I thought they were awesome. I went to see them a couple of times when they were in the UK at the Glastonbury Festival and then also in London. So, um, and I still love, you know, Bob Mould's material. I think he's still brilliant. But um, but also Minneapolis yeah. has, is famous for Prince as well. Did that, did that sort of, I mean, he was kind of getting pretty well known in the early 80s did that was was that at all evident on the the streets and the clubs his presence well yeah i mean it was um like in, in the underground you know there's people that that like everything you know and then there's people who have a kind of a narrow taste you know like uh, boulevard but um prince was everywhere in minnesota it was like minnesota was kind of like a agricultural state and it kind of under you know, like appreciated in, in the middle of the USA. And suddenly, you know, you have this great, you know, star Prince. Um, and uh, yeah, he was he was everywhere. I know that um, Prince was, he, he wandered into our rehearsal room once. I don't know how he got in the building because it was at night and um, everywhere Prince went, you could already know he's coming because he wore like an excessive amount of patchouli oil. You know, so you, uh, you you had kind of a prince alarm if he was coming around. But um, I met him. I don't know him personally, so I can't really say much about it. But he was, you know, like Minnesota was going bonkers over Prince. But I think a lot of people were, you know, in their own kind of uh, genre, were going more bonkers over who's could do and the replacements and, you know, groups like that. Jeezy queasy. Absolutely. No, we love them. We just everything they did was um just the, the speed that they made music was just you know the, the speed of their songs was just awesome so um perfect perfect three-piece band really but then then you relocated at the end of the nine eighties uh, didn't you and went back to or went to LA so did you just have enough of mini Minneapolis during that decade and felt like a need need to refresh your sort of um, creativity? Well, I stayed in Minneapolis for. I think it was around six years. I played in bands with Bobby Stinson after the replacements kicked him out and uh, made an album with Bobby. And um, eventually uh, I went on tour with Maureen Tucker and Sterling Morrison from the Velvet Underground as, as like a guitar player. And um, 
did that for nine years while I did my own stuff. And somehow I, I wanted to move to LA. It wasn't like, um, oh yeah, I remember. It wasn't like I was sick of Minnesota. I was actually just like wanting to meet other musicians and LA is kind of a hotbed for musicians. So me and my drummer friend drove from Minnesota through the desert and everything to Los Angeles, um, auditioned people. One guy that we auditioned, um, we really liked him a lot. And um, we had him come back a few times and we said, listen, man, we really like you. We want you in the band. And he goes, well, I'm a vegetarian and I'm not going to take no bullshit on the road. I want to be taken care of and blah, blah, blah. I said, dude, I will deliver you. You know, you're so good, you know, please, you know. And so he said, okay, well, let me think about it. And then he came back another time to audition and he was a little bit sad looking. And I said, what's up? He goes, I can't do it. I go, why? He goes, while I've been auditioning for you guys, another band I've been auditioning with and they just made their first album, but they right away lost their guitar player because of heroin. And um, they want me to join their band. And they already offered me a freaking huge salary, you know, every week. He said, I mean, I don't say this with ego, but he said, if it was a choice between music, I would choose you guys. But these guys are offering me uh, a salary. I go, well, who are they? He said, they're called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Later, I thought, holy fucking shit, you know, when they became super famous, that was his choice. But um, yeah, and, and then um, we got a bass player and out in L.A. This bass player, he had graduated um, architecture school and we were talking to him and he was kind of like not saying all that much about his past. And um, but it turned out that he was one of the original surfers in Los Angeles. He was a little bit older than us. And apparently some guys from Los Angeles had been to Hawaii and saw the Italian, I mean, the uh, Hawaiian guys surfing on, you know, wooden, you know, surf planks. And they brought that whole scene back to Los Angeles. He was one of the first ones in that small group of excited surfers. And strangely enough, not because he was a surfer, but he wound up playing bass in the Beach Boys for a tour. But before that, any of that happened um, in terms of playing with the Beach Boys, I was walking down the street with him in LA and I said, Ernie, um, what was it like out here during those Charles Manson you know, murders and stuff? He goes, oh, that was shocking to me personally. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I was in a band with Charlie Manson. And I go, what? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, yeah, you see, you see that, you see that newspaper machine there in front of that diner? He goes, that diner, I used to eat breakfast there every morning. And he goes, before I would go in, I'd buy a newspaper from that machine and I'd go in and sit down and have breakfast. On a particular morning, he said, I opened the machine and there was a full frame picture of Charlie Manson, who'd been arrested in the, you know, Sharon Tate, LaBianca murder um you know and so i said what you played in a band with charlie manson and um and then he told me the whole story and uh very strange connections you know because when i was on i mean this when i was on leave from the marines i was in the marine corps for a while i was forced in there for smoking weed and um i was on leave one day in uh, camp pendleton and i was at in oceanside california and there was a black school bus and on the school bus was some white writing. And I thought, oh, that must be like a evangelical kind of 
like Christian bus where they travel around because the words were about the world and God and reality and stuff. And I, that's what my first fix about that bus was. But then I met some of the girls that came off the bus and they said, hey, what's up with you? I said, oh God, I'm in the Marines and you know they're gonna send me you know, Westpac orders and I don't wanna go. And they said, well, come with us to the ranch. And like, that's it, that's, I didn't go. But years later, I got this book by Vincent Bugliosi and it had a picture of that bus. And like, <laughs> like there's too many connections to Charles Manson that I feel comfortable with. You know, I played with a guy that was in his band. I was invited to come on the bus, you know, <laughs> I don't like it so much. <laughs> My God, that was, you know, yes, you were that close, weren't you? Jesus, yeah. that was a bit of a moment, isn't it, Charlie? Yeah, I did. I did. I always remember Neil Young had quite a funny story. Well, he told it in a way which was very deadpan. He said that, you know, he said Charlie had a lot of, you know, because he did a lot of, you know, albums or he got a lot of, you know, like sending off his music to record companies and getting rejected. And then Neil Young just looks and says, yeah, real Neil didn't take rejection very very well and I thought that was a bit of an understatement really, wasn't it? He said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the music, the, the music isn't even that bad. I don't know, you know, too bad he didn't, maybe if he would have got picked up by a record company. He if only, if only they signed him for some label and just said, yeah. play your folky music, that's fine. So did you stay with Ernie that much after that kind of moment on bass? We, 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 um, we, we played, we recorded a couple of songs. We, we hung out in, um, hung out in LA and, uh, rehearsed and stuff but it didn't really develop into a, a set band we were thinking of putting something together but later um later because you know it's such a fantastic story you know like um i looked in my wikipedia and it said yeah sonny played with mo tucker from Bellwood underground sonny played with uh you know this person captain sensible from the damn and stuff but i said oh wait a second it does not say i played with the fucking you know guy who was in charles manson's band you know it doesn't say that so what I did was I contacted um, Ernie and did a whole kind of um, WordPress interview with him and um, kind of interviewed him to do reminiscence of when we were together and how that all came together, you know, to just kind of make people think I'm not making up a story or something. It's, it does sound kind of out, outside reality. You know, I was in a band with, you know, he, even that he was in a band with Charlie Manson. Yes. Kinda, you know, yeah. God, how, how did he not get, just briefly, how did he not get sort of sucked onto the bus and onto the ranch and sort of end up, yes, having a tattoo of the swastika on his head? Yeah, he, he told me that um, when he met Charlie and was hanging around with Charlie, they, they had done some auditions and I think they played one gig, but it was not in the very, very beginning of the whole, when Charlie got out of jail and stuff, but it was, he was already becoming a little bit powerful. He said he, he hung around with a lot of girls and a lot of tough Hells Angels kind of guys. And he said he didn't have this kind of um, exacting controlling influence over people, but he was amassing a posse. And so when Ernie was auditioning for Charlie, um, the, the Hells Angels or whatever they were, Saints Angels or some kind of biker guys were giving Ernie a hard time and Charlie was going, you know, hey, give the kid a chance, you know, stop bugging him, you know. So Charlie kind of had Ernie's back. Um, but it was before um, he got the really kind of 
outlandish ideas, you know, like the Beatles are talking to him in their songs and, yes. you know, pr predicting the future. So it was kind of the earliest, a lot of people, you know, like when they have the early stuff bef before they go off the brink of like insanity, the reports are that they're pretty straight. Like um, I I'm a friend with Wayne Kramer from the MC5 and he recorded some very early stuff with Gigi Allen. And um, Gigi, um, when he recorded with Fred Smith and Wayne, you know, I'd ask Wayne, what was that like? You know, cause I only knew Gigi Allen from, you know, the, the typical thing of the you know, crazy stuff he does on, did on stage. And so he goes, no, when I recorded with Gigi, he was just kind of looked like a new wave kind of kid. And he was very excited about rock and roll and very dedicated. And I said, oh, really? So there's a certain point where, you know, some people go off Yes. in a different direction and i think that you know you know who knows how far some people will go you know? do you think do you think it was kind of one one too many acid trips that sort of knocked quite a lot of people over the edge and then they never come back or they become much more deluded and paranoid it could be it could be i think that um for some people you know taking a lot of acid trips if they're if they're vulnerable you know in a certain way it kind of it can affect them you know i think some people you know um i don't know it's like keith richards said in, in a rolling stone interview he hadn't done an interview for a long long time and i think it was in the 70s somewhere and they're they're going well it must be great you know being in the what's called the world's greatest rock and roll band he goes it's been a hard slog dude you know keeping on top and then they go well what about all the drugs and the mansions and stuff he goes he goes the drugs he goes yeah i've done them all he goes but I'm not recommending it. I'm from strong stock. He goes, most of my guys, most of my friends who did drugs to the, to the velocity of the you know, amount of drugs that I did, they're all dead now, you know? So yeah, some people, they take acid and, and it just, just kind of, you know, makes their brain into, you know, some kind of pachinko machine that, um, you know, just misfires. But I know people that, you know, experimented with it and, it, it expanded their kind of, you know, way of thinking, but it didn't make them think they're God or something. No, no, that's, that's, that's just one trip too many. But then look, <laughs> and in the nineties, the nineties come around, things change again. And you relocate to the hot, the, the Netherlands and Holland and, and Europe. And um, so how did that sort of jump? Cause that's quite a big moment, isn't it? And during that time, sort of international flights and just relocating seems a bit more of um, an adventure, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's got more to do with a, you know, a horse, a gun, a meeting at OK Corral at 12 noon, you know, and a woman. You know, it's like I was on tour with um, Mo, and there was like uh, I was getting a great reception in Europe, uh, like to to myself and to my music. Mo was encouraging me to pass around some demos and stuff, so it was pretty. It was a pretty good reception. I met somebody and. Um, at a certain point, um, I just decided to, to to go to Europe, and you know, I, I I loved it because, like I said, from my background as a kid, you know, I never even thought I would go to a place like Europe. Um, from my um, experience, um, like later, I was I was married to a art professor, and her friends would come over to the house once in a while, and they'd bring photo books sometimes, and we'd sit at the kitchen table. Oh yeah, that's me in front of 
the Eiffel Tower on my student Eurail pass. You know, that's me with my backpack in front of Big Ben. And it was like a rite of passage for American graduates to go on this European journey. Yes. And I would look at the, yeah, and I'd look at the pictures in the book and I'd say, I'll never fucking go there. I'm a street kid from New York. Um, I've got zero education. I left school at like the end of the sixth grade. Um, there's no chance. And Mo Tucker brought me to Europe. Yes. I just, um, I just love everything about it. And so I eventually, I lived in Holland. I lived in Germany for many years. I lived in France for some years. And I, I absorbed it and, and just uh, never, I always appreciated it because I never even thought I would see those places. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's amazing. That must have felt, did it also feel like a fresh beginning? Because, you know, with this kind of cat from America, but no one also knows much about your background and much about your history. Again, you could sort of be who you wanted to be without any history. And I know when, when the Doors did that last album. It was almost like if you listen to all those lyrics and songs that Jim Morrison was writing, it was a bit like he he said something like, "I want I want a friend who doesn't need me," and it was almost like I just want to sort of meet people who have no kind of like, "Oh, Jim Morrison." It's just I just want to meet people and just go, "Oh, who's that dude?" It's like, I don't know. I think his name's Jim. Did you did you have that kind of feeling sometimes being in, in Europe? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But you know, um, it, it worked in a it worked in a good way. Um, because throughout it, you know, I was still pretty young, and I was pretty much like a wise ass, you know, like, so we'd play Germany. And like, you know, the promoter would come up to us after the show and goes, your contract says you will play for one hour complete. You have only played for 47 minutes. And I go, dude, it's not fucking factory work. What are you talking about? You know, we play as long as we feel like playing. And so there were like in, in New York, like suicide would, you know, once, you know, the scene started picking up at CBGBs and stuff, suicide was famous for getting on stage and playing an 11 minute set. And if you were so uncool and unarty and unaware that you would complain about their 11 minute set, that meant you were dumb. You were just not in the loop. You were just not getting the picture that 11 minutes of suicide breaking planets in half and destroying the universe is better than two hours of some jam band, you know? Yes, absolutely. And did you, I mean, working with Mo Tucker and then Sterling as well from the, the Velvets, was that a bit of a surreal experience at times? I know you, but, you, know, you must get over it, but occasionally just thinking, my God, these two, especially over the decades, the importance that everyone has about the Velvet Underground. I just wondered how that kind of developed you because these are kind of older musicians. I just wondered if they had become slight, like mentors and gave you some sort of slightly sort of guidance or advice. Yeah, that was that was an epiphany and uh, a real experience. Um, first off, I can say that I learned a lot from Mo about um, just about certain manners and stuff. Like by the time I was playing with Mo Tucker and Sterling, um, I'd been on a lot of tours and you know been around. And like I said, I was a street kid from New York. Um, so you know, what kind of manners do you learn on the streets? You know, so basically, we were just some kind of you know like almost to the level of spinal tap. Like we'd be in a restaurant and like um, a waitress would come over and she would say, oh, what can I do for you boys? And I'd say, oh, there's a lot you can do for me, sweetheart. And Mo would grab me by the collar, bring me outside and go, listen, Sonny, 
I don't like that. That woman could be married, could be engaged. Do not do that with me and don't do it at all. You know, I said, whoa, you know, and like, um, so on that level, um, they were like family. They taught me a lot. Um, Sterling and I shared hotel rooms on the tours. And, you know, I would say, Sterling, what was it like to be in a very cool, you know, in, in a lot of ways, popular band um, managed by Andy Warhol? What was that like in the 60s? And he would just tell me the insane stories and the stuff that, you know, they experienced and what it was like, you know, for them and stuff. And so, uh, yeah, it really was a was a great honor. It was a great pleasure. And um, Sterling wound up being kind of the older brother I never had. He gave me a lot of confidence. He, um, he believed in me and he um, just, uh, he had my back. And so I was really devastated when he was gone. Yes, my God, these moments happen, don't they? Which are incredibly hard to um, adjust to or kind of not yeah. accept, but, you know, just to take the call and hear the news but it's always um it's quite a sort of a whole horrible moment but the last 10 years i mean you've been so prolific actually you've been prolific for the rest, most of your life haven't you but the, the the releases that you've been bringing out has have just been absolutely extraordinary i had you know it's sort of so did you then sort of after you know like 2012 go back to america and then sort of set up base there again and then start just yeah focusing much more on on the new material that you've been bringing out yes um i came back to the states i was living in holland and i was getting ready to do a big tour all the way across canada and the usa and i'd done so many tours i was a bit weary of it and um i said maybe i i don't want to do this particular tour and i, I thought oh i don't have you know, the courage to tell the booking agent, I don't want to do it. But um, I said, maybe one kind of, you know, maniacal way to get out of it is to ask for like so much money that they'll just say no, you know, and so I did. <laughs> and they said, yes. And I said, whoa. And so um, I was in Thailand, and I was getting ready to embark on a grueling tour, like, you know, 50 days, you know, and I don't like days off, because you just wind up screwing around and it doesn't help. Um, so, you know, I was in Thailand, getting a little bit fit, you know, swimming and, you know, getting getting healthy because the, the, the road is just so, so demanding and it just takes a lot of energy. And when I was over there, I heard my family was in an accident in the States. So I had to rush over to the States and take care of them. And um, I did that for, for a while and at, at some point, I was kind of losing my compass, you know, I was going, well, well wait a second, you know, well, you know, like I'm, I'm becoming a soccer mom, taking care of my grandson here. And like, I'm a musician, but I, I was dedicated to taking care of them, but they became more resilient and uh, I wound up having more time. And I thought that to get re to, to emerge back, you know, to emerge into my music again, it might be cool to do a production work because I knew people who did production work like Don Fleming and he produced Sonic Youth and you know I, I watched people doing production work and I thought well that's that's kind of a cool job you know like Don would walk around in a woolen Tibetan hat and just go yeah sounds great yeah and he had a clipboard and yeah well play that louder man you know and like it was like I was going wow I could do that you know and so um I got ears you know and so I, I was going to do a production job which wound up not I did produce it, but 
the, the guy, Bobby Liebling, he wanted me to play on it. He wanted to me to provide the songs and he would write the lyrics. And it became this epic story of us going to Portugal recording an album. And once that was done and it got its fair run, I wanted to do another album of mine, which is my, my new album, it's, it's Snake Pit Therapy. And with that album, I had kind of a, um, a philosophical dilemma myself because um, during the time I was taking care of my family, um, I couldn't tour, I couldn't record, I didn't have an, or any income and my friends and fans had my back and kind of came to my rescue. And this outpouring of love and support, it really did humble me in a certain way. And I thought, okay, now um, if I make a new album, I can't be disingenuous and say like, you know, do like a typical so song with like, you know, hey, you know, this is a song like, you know, cross between who's could do Black Flag and, you know, uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, it's called fuck the police, fuck your mom, fuck the government, fuck, 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 fuck. I thought that's, that's, you know, I feel different now because people treated me well, you know, and so my new album, it does have songs that are desperate and feeling disenfranchised, but there are a few songs on there that have affirmations and are kind of like a love letter to my friends and my my fans. And, and uh, I wanted to offer them something that had a little bit of uh, like affirmations, like um, something a little more positive than the dark stuff, you know? Yes, my God, this has been an amazing period, hasn't it? And you, this was also released on a on a Finnish label as well, wasn't it? Which was kind of how did the, how did that sort of come about? Having such a sort of I don't know, such a sort of a place of a label from Finland. Yeah, um, there was a guy that was on the album I produced called The Limit. Um, the album's called Caveman Logic, and um, he was one of the guitar players on the album along with me, and. Um, he, you know, I said, hey, look around, you know, for a label. And he, he knew the people at Svart in Finland. And then I was talking to a guy, Pellet, who um, was uh, Pentagram's manager for a while. And he's a really cool guy. And he, um, he also was talking to Svart about this same album. And they were telling me that, that you know, Svart's a very honest label, that they do really great packaging. They put extra care into the packaging. They're not just knocking off copies of records to, to only, you know, market them and get them to move. They put some care into it. And, you know, over my lifetime career, there's there's been a lot of um, record companies that don't send me statements, that don't tell me how many they sold, how many were pressed, and how much they owe me. They just kind of don't communicate, you know. So I've been ripped off. So um, the, the prospect of, you know, um, going with an honest company was very you know, exciting. And so they put out that album I produced. And then afterwards, they put out my new album. And um, I'm really pleased. They're, they really sort of take care for their artists. Yes, absolutely. God, I must admit, your your body of work is, is absolutely extraordinary. Have you managed to sort of keep some sort of archive or tracker of, of everything that you've done so that, you know, it's it's kind of available? Or is it just kind of quite impossible to do that? I, th I think um, on my Wikipedia, they've got like a discography and like, it's not complete, but it's mostly all there. Um, and um, I, I, I don't have copies of some of my albums and I, but I do have some of the masters and my hard drives and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I just basically, you know, like an artist friend of mine told me once that, you know, creating is holy. 
And that really kind of defined what I've been doing my whole life is I, I really enjoy the, the act of creating the music. Um, even like I'm very uncomfortable uh, with other aspects of it. And, like once I was at a, once I was on a tour with, um, of Europe with Ivan Julian from Richard Helen of Voidoids mm -hmm. and Bobby Steele from the Misfits. Th those guys were both in my group at the same time while we did like a very long European tour. Um, we did a very exciting show in France and, um, you know, afterwards people were buying the t-shirts. Unfortunately, the t-shirts had a picture of me on it. You know, there are all people running around with picture yourself on a t-shirt and you're going, oh God, you know, and it's like, then we wound up at an after show party and me and Ivan were sitting in these kind of like upholstered king chairs, like thrones in a living room on the walls at the guy's house were posters of me. They were playing my music. And then there were three French girls all like uh, dancing in the middle of the living room, all slinky and sexy with my t-shirt with my picture on it. And I was getting like a weird sunny feedback, you know, it's like, I, I didn't really dig it. You know, I just thought they don't even know me, you know, it's like, and I don't, I don't re resonate to this kind of attention for me. If I play a show and somebody goes, great show, Sonny, that's enough for me. You know, it's like, but you know, this whole thing, it, it's, so I took a taxi and got out of there, you know, but like, um, but like, uh, yeah, it's like, um, it's, it's just different than people could, could, um, you know, imagine there are people that are like sponges for that. You know, it's like they yes, like to be observed. You know. It's going to end in tears, though, if you if if you need that sort of a um, kind of recognition to feel good about yourself it's a bit like a bad drug isn't it sort of fame but does, does that mean that um you're gonna sort of play some do you still you know are you planning to tour at all in the next you know 12 months at all you know is is, is sort of live dates a possibility with you now that, that's what um that's what i hear you know people want me to play shows and festivals and all that but um for, for the moment i'm just kind of still writing songs and, and creating stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I have to see what develops, what kind of, what kind of offers will drive me onto stage. You know, it's like, um, it's a, it's a lot of commitment. It is. For me did a, did I, you have a band for the last album, by the way? Did you, or were you playing most of the uh, um, instruments yourself? I just wonder who else you were had, on, had on there. Um, I had like a, a, a like, Recordings with it with a drummer and a bass player for 90 something percent of the songs where it was consistent throughout and then for other songs I had some stuff that I had backed up from other sessions that I did so it's kind of the cool thing about you know being a solo artist like um, like I, I didn't realize it when I decided to just call what I do is Sonny Vincent instead of shotgun. You know, I had a band called Shotgun Rationale. I had testers. I had, you know, all different configurations. But now that I'm just uh, called, you know, by my own name, I can just reach out to the community of musicians I know. Like right now, um, I have a, a song that um, I'm done with that has a drummer um, from Germany. Um, this guy, Vom, he was in a group called Doc and the Medics. And he was later... Um, going to play with Stiv Baders in a band. Now he's in Totenhosen, which is a huge German punk band. But uh, I got a recording with me and Vom and a killer bass player. And I 
I built that up and um, I wanted a guitar player. So I just said, oh, who would be able to play a cool guitar part on this? So I just reached out to a friend guitar player in New York and he's going into a studio and doing a guitar part. So I can just kind of cherry pick, headhunt <laughs> different musicians for my, for my music. Yes, that's amazing. And have you set up a studio in your own sort of place where you're living at the moment that most yeah, people... Yeah, I've got a... I got a very... I got a very cool studio in my place and I, I enjoy doing it because um, that was one of the benefits, the few benefits of the pandemic. Um, I used to record 24 track tape. I knew how to run that stuff with an Eve board or whatever. And um, I was pretty good at, you know, recording and producing um, in, in tape studios when digital. Oh, I think you might've got a call there. When, when can you hear me? Yeah, I think you just got an interruption. Yeah, yeah, when digital came around, I I just thought I don't want something to do with that. Hmm. Like, um, you know what? I just kind of when, whenever I did digital recordings, I would just sit next to an engineer, and he would do all the engineering stuff, and I would just say, hey, you know, I want to do another track, or can you make the snare drum louder? But now during the pandemic, I learned a lot about, you know, digital recording and I, I, I can do quite well at it. And so that was one of the benefits, you know, of the pandemic, having the time to focus on learning that. Yes. Well, actually, it's interesting because I did an, uh, an interview quite recently with Danny, Danny B. Harvey, who was kind of one of the Rockettes and is, you know, he's got a solo career now. But I think everybody I, I sort of do an interview with have got a sort of a, a recording studio in their garage or in their downstairs living room or basement, you know. So it's kind of interesting. I think everyone's kind of learning that this is the, the way to sort of, yeah, make music and not have to sort of be too worried about studios and sort of cost and stuff like that. So, um, Yes, it's got back to the DIY, but everyone's kind of going back to the music that they absolutely love as well, which is quite interesting. I think they're thinking, I just want to do what I really like. I'm not going to try and do something that might sell, you know, 20,000 copies or something like yeah. that. So, um, oh, that's yes. cool. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, that's, that's very cool. So um, I can see. So does that mean then, just last question, do you, is that the case then that you've got another album, you know, that will be coming out next year, 2022? I think so, um, but I'm not really sure. I, I do things um, really kind of spontaneous and intuitively. Um, sometimes I'll record songs and put them to the side and, and say, okay, um, like when I, um, when I put out the Spiteful album, that album had um, that Rat Scabies on drums, uh, Glenn Matlock on bass, and it had Steve McKay from the Stooges on sax. And like, it was kind of a, a mid-tempo um, album. I like mid-tempo, but I also like, like, you know, the speeds of Who's Do and Dead Kennedys and stuff like that. And so, you know, I was standing in front of Rat, you know, Rat was at the drums. And, uh, you know, I said, hey, Rat, let's do a fast one. And he goes, wasn't that one fast enough for you? You know, it's like, um, he, he just wanted to do like, you know, like the damned, you know, straight, you know, like medium tempo stuff. Yeah. I want, sometimes I like to make songs that sound like a circular saw cutting through the armor of a tank you know just kind of noisy and fucking aggressive and so i couldn't do that on that album although you know i expressed that feeling in other ways on the album you know i did get my 
desperation out. But before I released that album, I made another album called um, Cyanide Consomme that has a lot of those kind of songs on it. And so I made sure to release the one with the really fast kick-ass songs first and uh, just kind of anticipating, like, I don't want people to say, well, you know, Sonny's getting a bit older here. He's put out this song that's all medium tempo, you know, like, I don't like that because, you know, but I, I do know the mentality and human nature. So I put out, even though the, they were recorded in, in reverse timelines, I put out the fast one first, let that sink in a little bit, then put out the medium tempo one, you know, and then um <laughs> yes that is, that is that's awesome i just you know i'm just um you know, your, your product productivity and and ability to create is just absolutely extraordinary i mean it's just you know it is one or two albums a year apart from 2013 that seemed to have quite a few albums so um yeah I, i've just never seen an artist with so much kind of incredible drive to keep to keep it going but um yes it's 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 fantastic for your fans and i have to say the last album does sound incredible i've been playing that recently and um it does it does seem like you've, you're still hitting a rich seam of kind of creativity thank you yeah i'm i'm, I'm just lucky you know I'm, I'm blessed in some ways you know when i I, I, um, I don't know how to explain it. Um, it's like, who, I think it was, I heard an artist, um, like this guy, James Taylor, I'm not like a huge fan, but you know, I've heard stuff on the radio and he said, oh, that's nice, you know? And I saw him on a talk show with a kind of naive um, talk show interviewer. And he, he just had played a song on the talk show and, uh, and, and, you know, like Fire and Rain or something. She goes, that's amazing. Like, it must be so difficult to play guitar that way. He goes, if it was difficult, I wouldn't do it. You know, it's easy for me, you know. So it's it's not meant from a ego point of view, but I appreciate what you said. But for me, it's like, I'm just lucky. Like, it's just overpowering for me. Like, if I go in a music store and I'm checking out a guitar and I plug in an amp, I'm already writing brand new riffs, checking out a guitar that... I go home and, you know, make a s song out of, you know, it's like, um, if I don't even like, um, I don't know, anytime I pick up a guitar, I'm, I'm writing a song, and it just comes very, very easy for me. And um, what, what, what's a little bit more, um, uh, like soul searching is to come up with the topics and the lyrics and to, to try to express myself that way. Um, that's a little bit, I'm a little bit more careful in, in that. It's not that I'm not careful about you know, my riffs and my, my song structure. It's just that those things come naturally for me. Like I've done, I've done shows on tour where we have run out of songs and um, they want more. And so um, if I'm with a band that can follow me like a hound dog, I'll just make up, you know, I'll play like an E and then play a D and then play an A and an E and then a D and then an A and then A, 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 A. And I'll just sing stuff to it. And strangely enough sometimes they like that stuff better than the stuff we rehearsed you know so i'm just lucky that way and yes you know. and do you have a particularly favorite guitar or do you have so many guitars i just wonder if there's one guitar that you often just go god this is the this is the one that you always reach for that just kind of creates creates that magic i have a favorite one it's in holland still um i haven't been able to bring it back so it's been sitting there safely since I've been in the States for about five years or so. Um, 
a friend sent me a guitar through the mail that's a, that's different from mine. It's got like a wider neck and I had to get used to playing it, um, but it sounds cool. So, you know, that's that's what I use. I don't, don't really have a favorite one at the moment, um, but I'm able to, you know, wrestle my sound out of almost any guitar, you know? So, yes. I mean, when, when you have a really good one, it almost seems like it plays itself. So, so yeah. And did you, I mean, just almost lastly, did you, did you have any sort of closure with your kind of rather strange family and just, you know, parents or did, did that just, did you never see them again after you left home? Oh, um, no, I just kind of just, just basically divorced them. You know, it's like, uh, uh, I, I've been on my own, you know, since I'm 13, you know, basically traveling, hitchhiking since back then. And, um, I didn't have any support. And so, and I, like I said, that's another way I've been blessed. Um, being on your own since you're a little kid um, and lying about your age, I never got in situations where people were scamming on me or trying to abuse me. Most people took me under their wing and kind of looked out for me when I was a kid on the road. So I was very lucky. And um, it's another form of education to be around older people when you're that young and, and being, you know, on a kind of a street level, living in lofts and all that. So um, in terms of my former um, life, um, no, I just, I just kind of divorced myself from all that because it was, it, to look back, it was, it was only a, a lot of uh, scars and pain and stuff. So I didn't want to. No, my God, don't blame you. And just, I mean, if there was something you could have said to you, like your 16 or 18 year old self starting out, I mean, obviously you're, you know, we're starting out a bit earlier than that. I mean, is there any little advice that you would have just whispered in their ear or a bit of wisdom that you'd have thought, oh, you know, you know, most people say, well, I just do it all again almost. But, you know, sometimes people say, oh, there is one yeah. thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. It depends on what they, that question is asked. Today, I would say like, um, if I was looking at my 16-year-old self and my 16-year-old self is looking to me for advice, I would say, dude, it's a fucking ball of madness. Don't ask me, you know, just <laughs> figure it out as you go along. <laughs> yes. But maybe, maybe I would say don't mouth off to the police. They have guns in the U.S., you know, like just practical things, you know, but like in terms of philosophical things, I, I would say like, you know, just be strong and just, uh, you know, treat each person you meet as an individual. Don't put them in a box and put them in a country or put them in a race or put them in a gender and just, uh, you know, just do the best you can, man. And it's a fucking ball of madness. <laughs> it's a ball of madness, isn't it? But look, Sonny, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing and, and just amazing to speak to you because your story is you know, beyond anything I'd imagine. So that's brilliant. And if you want, I can always send you the, the link and you can always kind of use it elsewhere if you so care because um, sometimes people post it elsewhere. But um, I really appreciate oh, it. Yeah. It's, it's been amazing. So thank you again for your time. And, yeah, and, thank uh, you for having such great... Um, great questions they're you know they're, they're they're really helpful that you know my history one one guy recently did an interview with me and said what was it like when you first encountered punk I was going what are you talking about I didn't practically invented it you know it's like I didn't encounter it you know it was that and like appreciate your questions and uh, feel free to you know sculpt the interview into a 
shape that you know you think has the most impact and thank you very much yeah no well look thank you and take care and have a an amazing day and and winter okay take care sunny i'll let you go but um yeah amazing you can send me the and that was me in conversation with Sonny Vincent talking about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. And um, yes, he has got a website which you should uh, check out or I think on social media. But if you just go to or Google Sonny Vincent, um, you'll find out more information. And like I said at the beginning, hopefully you're paying attention. He has got a lot of solo work available and out there. So a massive thank you. Also, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. Um, and all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Lucky you. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.